So we see the listing in the newsletter. A metta retreat. That's what I need. A week of loving kindness. How great. We send our registration in. We get accepted. We talk about it to friends. Metta practice, they say. Oh, it's lovely. I love metta practice. Oh, you're so lucky. A week of loving kindness. How blissful. So we come to the retreat full of good intentions, excitement, a little trepidation, but really prepared to practice loving kindness. We start to practice diligently, following the instructions. But what's this? I'm experiencing something other than loving kindness. That's not what I came here for. That wasn't what I paid my money for. What's going wrong? Well, actually nothing is going wrong. Uh, but what, that's what I'm t- uh, here to talk to you about tonight. And this, ret- this talk is for those of you who perhaps have not been filled with loving kindness for every moment of the retreat. But somehow I have the feeling that there's probably not many people who need leave the room. So please stay and listen. So here we are directing the mind towards metta. But even with all of the good intentions that we bring to this practice, our habitual patterns of mind will arise. They're here with us. We don't leave them behind. And unfortunately, those patterns of mind are usually ones that are limiting, that are difficult, that condition the way we act in the world. Because when we thought about coming to the retreat, it certainly wasn't to get in touch with our desire or our greed or our aversion or our worry. We had another intention in mind. And these forces that distract us, that arise so consistently in our practice and in our lives, are called hindrances, hindrances to clear seeing. And they're the hindrances that connect us, that prevent us from connecting with the metta practice, from being present. And these hindrances are really archetypal and universal forces. They're not just about you, even though at times you may seem so identified with them or so caught up in them, or they seem so personal. It's really helpful to know that they're very universal, have been Uh, plaguing people on a spiritual path for many, low these many centuries. So these five hindrances are greed or desire, the force of wanting in the mind, aversion in all its manifestations of ill will or irritability or fear or judging, sleepiness or dullness known in this tradition as sloth and torpor, two very evocative words, restlessness, and doubt. And each of us will find that at some time during this retreat or maybe during our whole practice history or even our lives that we specialize in one or two. They may change, but at any moment we feel quite comfortable wearing the cloak of one or the other. Though there are times when you can have what's called a multiple hindrance attack where it seems like they're all (laughs) laying claim to you at that time. This practice we're doing here of metta is actually a purification practice, as well as being a concentration practice. We're cultivating both aspects. 
So what happens when we turn our mind to loving-kindness? What we naturally see, what arises for us, are the obstacles to loving-kindness, are what's preventing us from feeling this feeling of metta or friendliness or goodwill. These obstacles, these conditions of desire or aversion. And though seeing this can be painful, seeing these forces in the mind can be painful, it's only when we see them that we can actually work with them and that the purification can actually happen. When we see them clearly, when we know them for what they are, can we actually begin the purification process of confronting them and working with them, of dealing with them. We also can then start to see how conditioned they are by circumstances, by one thing leading to another in the context of the retreat, in the simplicity of the retreat, we have that opportunity to slow down a little and see these states of mind and how they get created, how they continue, how they're perpetuated, and then hopefully how we can learn to find freedom in them. So these hindrances can be cause for tremendous struggle in our practice, but they're also the fuel for valuable insight, for the places of really deep opening, for the places of learning. So it's important not to see them as obstacles or enemies of something to be gotten rid of. They actually have been known as the manure for enlightenment, the very thing from which that freedom for w- that we're seeking for is actually can be found. And it's true that the most difficult places in our lives and in our practice can be the places where we learn the most, that are the most rich for us. As I say, as painful as they are while we're experiencing them, it's the place where we can actually learn the most. And so they're an integral part of our practice. In fact, they often are our practice. They're not separate from our practice. It's not the case that if they would go away, then I could begin to practice. It's actually where the practice happens. And they can also lead us to that deep understanding that it's not what we're experiencing that matters, but how we're relating to it. Really important insight to come to, and a lot of freedom can be gained from understanding that. So the first of these hindrances is is the one of desire or wanting, craving and clinging. It's known as the near enemy of metta because it can often masquerade as metta. There can be a blurring of the lines or the boundaries in that force of wanting in the mind. And it comes in many forms, uh, the forms of attachment or conditional love or passion or lust. Attachment is when love is flavored by fear. Conditional love is that love that says, I'll love you if you love me, or if you do this for me, or if you are this way for me, or if you support me in the way that I am. Very conditional. It can also be the selfish kind of love, where it's about my needs and my wants and my desires, that this relationship serves me in some way, and it's about my needs. Or it can be as passion or lust. 
I'll die if I don't possess you. You know, how many songs have been written about that kind of feeling? You know, you can, the, line, the words just are there, you know, I want you, I need you, I must have you, that obsessive neediness of craving in the mind. But metta in its purest form is unbounded, unconditional, and universal. It's unbounded, it's not limited by time or form or space. It's unconditional. It truly accepts the other or oneself just as they are. It's universal. It's not restricted to those that we know and love. It really is open and universal. And it's not limited by this small sense of self that's separate from other. It acknowledges the interconnectedness, the interdependence of all things and all beings. And these near enemies of metta have the ability to give us some temporary form of satisfaction, obviously, or else they wouldn't be, we wouldn't be lusting after them so much. But it's just a very temporary satisfaction. The power of metta has the power to transform our minds and our, and our hearts in very deep and powerful ways. So how do we know when we have moved from metta to the near enemy of metta, to some form of conditional love? It's really any time there is an undercurrent of fear or conditionality to our feeling, where the thoughts come can be very subtle of, what if this person changes? What if they don't love me back? Or when there is some sort of desire to control them, to have them fulfill some need of your own. In true metta practice, the focus is on the other person and their happiness. In this type of conditioned love or attached love, it's on our feelings, on our needs, not theirs. So it's usually recommended when we begin the practice of working with the dear friend to not choose someone to whom you might become attached, especially sexually attached, because of the likelihood of it slipping over into that that arena. So just to keep it simple. You can also tell that you've slipped over when the fantasies start spinning, you know, when the stories start to come about certain things that might happen, the way the relationship might blossom or grow or change um, with the benefactor. It can be fantasies of being a special student, being seen by this person, being noticed, being somehow special in their lives. So how do we work with this desire in its form of the near enemy? The first and the primary technique, and one that I'll be repeating often through this talk, is to become aware of it, to be aware that it's present, and then to see it clearly for what it is, to get to know it, how it manifests, what it feels like, so that when it arises, there's more of an ability to be, to be clear that this is what's happening. So it is a practice. If you have a suspicion that you've moved into that state of a near enemy of metta, can be helpful to use vipassana, the tool of really being present for what's um, happening in the mind-body to see what's really going on, to really check what the state is, the mood or emotion that's present. can sometimes use the tool of noting, which we teach in the vipassana practice, where we just use a simple word to convey what the feeling is that's present for us. 
It can be awe, attachment. Just something that clearly acknowledges what's going on can help to cut through that and then come back to a more pure feeling of metta. But when this um, movement happens, a movement to the near enemy of metta, it's really important not to beat oneself up for it, not to be averse to it or have some sense of judgment about it. These forces have been with us for a long time, are very conditioned in us. We have often such a sense of neediness, such a sense of a place that needs to be filled in us, that it's often almost automatic that we move to that way of being. And in some relationships, attachment of some kind is going to be there for us. Um, The attachment of a mother to a child or a parent to a child is one of uh, is very, is a very strong thing, or to a partner. As we sit up here, two couples, um, we all have to understand that force in our lives. And the thing is then not to reject it, not to think that it shouldn't be there, but just to work with it skillfully, to see how it manifests, to see its potential, to actually limit the love that we feel or how it sometimes doesn't let the other person be fully who they are, that it's actually controlling or limiting. And then to work, if possible, to move beyond that, and just to know that with time and with practice, it's not the love lessens, it's just that the controlling or the clinging can lessen. The love deepens, the fear lessens. As well as in the context of the near enemy in the formal practice of metta, obviously the force of desire manifests in many ways in our lives and here on retreat. Again, we don't leave it behind. It's that force in the mind that's never satisfied, that wants this, that doesn't want that. And we can see how, especially on retreat, even the simplest objects can become the force of so much desire, of such strong wanting. Here on retreat, it can be really simple things like the walking path that you usually have that someone's come and taken for that session, or the right seating in the dining room that has a view out to the woods, or an interview, or a cup of tea at a certain time, or something you'd just been desiring um, that wasn't there this time on the breakfast table. But in the simplicity of the retreat, we have the opportunity to work with these desires, because most of the time we can't act out on them. The the very format, the structure of the retreat doesn't allow us to. So we can, this desire, this object can arise in the mind. We can feel, feel it in the body, feel it's a movement in the mind and actually not have to act on it because sometimes it's just not possible. We can't. So it's a really safe environment to work with these forces of desire It's helpful to work with some very simple things, just like wanting to move out of a position that's a little uncomfortable or to not come to a sitting, just to see that forced desire and work with it. So as I said, the renunciation of the retreat is a great format for this. Joseph Goldstein, who was just here teaching last week, said the wonderful line of restraint allows us to see the impermanent nature of desire. Just by not acting on that force in the mind, a moment later, a day later, a week later, where is that force that was so strong and was going to impel us to action? When we don't act on it, 
there's a possibility of liberation from it. The second hindrance is that of aversion. It's the far enemy of metta, hatred, anger, or irritation. When desire is present, it's much more seductive. It sometimes almost can be a pleasant hindrance. Just fuels us, feeds us in so many ways. But aversion is much more obvious and much more difficult to work with. As I said earlier, the purification of the metta practice often works to bring up these difficult opposite feelings to the practice of metta. And these feelings of aversion or ill will can be towards ourselves or towards the person with whom we're trying to send metta, you know, a dear friend or a benefactor. Because as you spend more time with that person in the practice, and it's one of the reasons we encourage you to stay with one individual, is to see the whole scope of the relationship you have with them. What was difficult in the relationship can become more obvious. Their irritating habits, you know, the time they let you down, all of these things as we're wishing them well sort of spring up in our mind. We're sort of, what's this doing here? I love this person. But just because we're tending the mind in one direction, often the opposite is brought up. And it's one of the reasons we start the practice with the benefactor, because hopefully with that person, we have a fairly clear and simple relationship, one of which there's not a lot of confused um, relationships or feelings, a fairly simple and direct, straightforward relationship. But even with the benefactor, difficulties can arise, you know, wanting more from them, wanting to be seen, whatever it might be. But as I said, this is where the practice is, where the learning can take place. The purification, it's like a magnifying lens. It's almost like the inoculation that brings on symptoms of the disease. As we do the metta practice, the opposite can arise. Because when we turn the mind so steadily in one direction, these latent or perhaps not so latent opposite tendencies can arise or become clearer, just the contrast. We're trying to decondition hatred and condition love. The purification actually can only happen when those opposite tendencies arise, when they're present, when they're available for us to work with. If we did just exist in a state of metta throughout this whole retreat, there wouldn't be any purification going on. The arising of these opposite tendencies also can be a symptom of our own lack of self-acceptance and self-worth. Who am I to feel this kind of love? My heart is bounded. It's not boundless. I can't feel this much. It's not possible. I'm too limited. All those ways in which we describe ourselves, which we sabotage our ability to open to that possibility of metta and unconditional love. So it becomes... These, these, these tendencies of mind start to become clear. Sometimes they're all we can see. It's sort of like a flaw or a stain on a piece of clothing that most other people wouldn't even see. But because we know they're there, our attention is always drawn there. We're always trying to hide them or, or do something about them. They become so obvious to us. 
or a chipped tooth in the mouth, you know, where the tongue keeps going back. And it becomes all of our experience, even though if we stopped and reflected, you know, there's much more going on than that. But we're just drawn back again and again to this source of irritation, this place where there's a, some stuckness or we don't feel free. For those of you who are John Cleese fans and have watched Faulty Towers, which I have many times, it's sort of like the episode where um, he's a... I won't go into description, so this is only for you, those of you who know John Cleese and Faulty Towers. When the Germans are coming and his wife says, don't mention the war, and all he can... Every sentence, he can't help it. It's just something about this and something about that. It's just that way, these tendencies, whatever we're not trying to see, they just come bursting through. You know, as much as we're trying to bring the mind back, these other tendencies of mind will just come through. And so the parts of ourselves that we don't like or the flaws in another person just can become huge, can become all we see. And when our intention is to be practicing metta, to be cultivating these states of love and kindness and well-being and acceptance, when the other is present, even if in the beginning it's quite small, just a subtle irritation, the contrast is so, long, so large, again it looms and become greater and greater because we have a sense of what we want and this is just right there in the way and it just becomes all we can see. So we say to ourselves, may I be happy? And we sense you know, the meaning of the words and the feeling in the body and we go, well, I'm not happy. I'm grumpy, you know, I didn't like breakfast, it was a terrible breakfast, why do they have to serve oatmeal every day? Or I don't like my yogi job, you know, it's so busy and noisy, I I just can't do it mindfully, or the person next to me breathes so heavily, or whatever it is, Um, you know, just the little irritations become large because they're contrasted by this state that we're trying to cultivate. We say, may I be safe? And we think, I don't feel safe. I never feel safe. I'm afraid. I'm lonely. Whatever it might be comes up in clear relief. Or when we're sending metta to a good friend and wishing them well, the times when we weren't a good friend to them come up and there's feelings of remorse or guilt. The judging mind is also a common manifestation of the far enemy of metta. It's such a common habit of mind, really to know that you're not alone if you feel you're spending a lot of time judging. It's really very present for most of us. It's this tendency to see others as different, as separate, as as, um, we have to compare. Why did they do that? Look what he's wearing. How could they walk that way, you know? How loudly they breathe. What's going on with them? You know, whatever it might be, we just pick something and it's just gnaw at it over and over again. And we spend a lot of time on retreat doing this. We spend a lot of time in our lives doing this, comparing, I'm better than, I'm worse than, or even maybe I'm the same as, whatever it might be. And just to know that this comparing mind is actually one of the last fetters to go on our path to liberation. So it's going to be with us for quite a while. It's best to make friends with it, whatever, you, whatever way you can. And we're often our own harshest judge. You know, I'm too lazy, I'm clumsy, my feet are too big, 
You know, I'm too angry. I'm too fearful. Why do I always do that? Why do I always respond in this way? Those stories that we tell ourselves about the way we are, the things we don't like. So it's really important to come to see these judging thoughts as just thoughts, just as we do in our Vipassana practice, that only have the power that we choose to give them. If we can just see them, see them as a thought in the mind and let them go, they don't have to condition our next moment of experience. So they can become a familiar friend where the attitude is more of one of recognition and acceptance rather than more aversion and judging. So working with the far enemy of metta, again, the most important thing is to become aware of it, not to become lost in it. So that moment of waking up to knowing that it's present is actually a present, a precious moment. It's a moment we should be grateful for, even though it's unpleasant. And as much as possible, just to keep saying the phrases, they have a power that we actually shouldn't underestimate, even if they feel like we're saying, may I be peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. They really do have a power to transform, and it may be seem minute or this sense of just these ineffectual drops on a hot, steaming cauldron, but eventually those small drops have the power to pacify the mind. It says in the Dhammapada, hatred cannot coexist with loving kindness and dissipates if supplanted with thoughts based on loving kindness. We then have to just accept the situation and remember that this is a purification practice and it's not a sign that you're doing the practice wrong. It can actually mean that the practice is working. And it's also when the flavor of equanimity, the, met, the equanimity flavor of metta can come in and be helpful. Just to acknowledge that even though I'm saying, may I be happy, that I'm not happy. And that's just the way it is. We can also go back to the basics, to the beginning of the practice, where we get in touch with the goodness, the inherent goodness of ourselves or the other person. Or if that's not present for us, just to really come back to acknowledging our wish to be happy or their wish to be happy, that all beings wish to be happy. As all beings wish to be happy, I too wish to be happy. But if they then become overwhelming, if they really become a block to the phrases, to the feeling of metta, then we turn to vipassana. We just give our attention to these, the manifestation of this force as it's presenting itself, aware of the sensations in the body very directly, very clearly, just sitting with them as they present themselves. What's happening? How do I know this is what I'm feeling? How is it manifesting in tightness of the chest, fluttering of the heart, clenching of the hands, whatever it might be? Uh, the, The mood in the mind, the flavor, the color of the mind, checking in with that, just being present, not as much as possible, not getting lost in the story, not telling a story about what's going on, but just the pure, bare experience of what's happening. And then if those emotions, that feeling is too strong, then turn to something neutral, like the breath or sound. So there's more spaciousness around what's going on. It can be helpful to reflect on your motivation for doing this practice. 
and that you're willing to accept the challenges that are, in, that are involved to bring some equanimity to just being willing to sit there with this process of purification. And then when you feel ready, when there's some steadiness of mind, then to come back again to the phrases, connecting back in with the metta object. Outside of the formal metta practice, just being here on retreat can bring up many forms of aversion or ill will. We're in community with so many different people. It's a new situation, quite strange to some of us. Can manifest as irritability or judging or fear, as I said. And when these tendencies are strong in our mind, we really have to know how much they color all of our experience. Because everything is seen through that lens. But if we can bring some mindfulness, some awareness to it, we have a possibility of it not then conditioning our next mind moment or reaction or thought. The kind of aversive states can arise like boredom, fear or irritability. Boredom can often happen in metta practice. It's a lack of interest in the present moment. And sometimes we have to look and see what's beneath the boredom, what's preventing us from being interested in what's here. Or it can just be a general resistance to being on retreat, the renunciation of the retreat. Not another sitting, another walking, another phrase. You know, at times the beginning of metta practice can feel like pushing a boulder uphill. You know, it's really just slogging, you know, at it. Another phrase, can I bring, you know, forgetting even about the feeling of metta or loving kindness, can I just say another phrase? It's really just, it's like the image of, you know, those old steam engines when they would start going and, you know, they'd let off the brakes or whatever and they would just... At first, the movement is imperceptible. You know, it's hardly moving. But gradually, with that persistence, some head of steam does get worked up and the practice can start to roll. But just know that many people experience the first days of the retreat a lot of resistance, a lot of lack of energy for saying the phrases again and again. Fear can often arise. In the seclusion of the retreat, the things that we worry about, that we're fearful of, can really loom large for us because we don't have the support of our daily routines. So again, it's important just to see fear for what it is, as this set of sensations in the body and a color or flavor in the mind. Another set of bodily experiences to use the Vipassana practice to be present for it. And try not to be afraid of the fear to really soften and open and allow it to be there. And sometimes we need to find a refuge when that happens. The traditional refuges of Buddha, Dharma or Sangha, the people here on retreat, or the refuge of nature, of just being out in this beautiful landscape and feeling supported by the earth and kinship with the trees and the animals around. When we're working with both the near and far enemies in our formal practice, if the reaction is coming up strongly for a person you're sending metta to, stay present with that person, trying to send them metta for as long as you feel you can continue the phrases, 
that there's some sense of equanimity or mindfulness of being able to be present for the feelings that are blocking the metta, if they're weak enough or in the background, there's some stability of mind that can hold everything in that practice. Because there can be some real value in opening up to the difficulties. We don't want to turn away from them immediately. We can just acknowledge them for what they are, Um, see that they're there, they're part of our experience. Just to sort of ask the question, can I hold this? Can I open to this experience? Can I see that both are present? But if that feeling, that ability gets lost, if the feelings become the aversive feelings or the feelings of desire or irritability, whatever they are, become too strong, if the phrases just get lost, if we can't continue the feeling of metta, the practice of metta, then move to an easier person just straight away move to someone for whom it's easy for you to feel metta. It's not actually giving up or failing. It's actually skillful means. We're always encouraging you to practice where the metta flows most easily. And then as you become stronger, as the metta becomes more stable, you can then open up again and go back to that person holding the entirety of their being in the field of metta, you know, the difficult and the loving aspects. The third of the hindrances is what's known as sloth and torpor, very evocative. And it's this laziness or dullness of the mind or the body. It's very common, especially in the first days of a retreat. It can manifest as this this very pleasant, dreamlike state, but we're not cultivating anything in that pleasant state except more sloth and torpor. And it's almost always present in the first days of the retreat. So we really need to give some allowance to that to really, um, if it is a real tiredness of the body because of our busy lives, to acknowledge that, you know, to take some naps, whatever might help us then be more present. But after that, after the first day or so, whatever it feels, we need to start to work more skillfully, more directly with these tendencies um, because they really can prevent us from being present, from practicing. They can often hide something that we're not wanting to look at. It's some form of resistance. Because metta is a concentration practice, it has this stilling and stabilizing effect on the mind. And because of that, the mind can fall into, more, more easily fall into a sense of stupor unless we balance the energy. So even more than our Vipassana practice, we need to work carefully with balancing the concentration and the energy to make sure that we're not falling into sinking mind when the mind just collapses in on itself and there's not a sense of alertness or aliveness. So we do the same things that we do in our Vipassana practice. We can open our eyes, stretch up, take a few deeper breaths, you know, put our hands above our heads, stand up in the hall. It's fine to do standing practice, to do metta while you're standing is wonderful. So just incorporate that in your practice. When we do the walking, as Michelle said, we can actually in this practice walk faster, walk at a normal speed so we can gain some energy from that. We don't need to do the slow, mindful walking. 
that we do in our Vipassana practice. Though I have found that slowing down just a little does remind me that I'm practicing. It's not so easy for me to get lost. So again, just to play with that, you know, some fast walking and doing the metta practice can be very enlivening, very um, helpful to the practice. The fourth of these hindrances is almost the opposite, and that's that of restlessness or worry, anxiety, where the mind runs on and on, even physical agitation. And, you know, it's often so present in our lives. Our lives are so stimulated. We're used to so much going on that we bring that energy into retreat. And the restlessness that we often feel in the first few days is really natural, again, in the confines of the retreat, in the simplicity of the retreat. Just that energy that we had coming in can sometimes just want to break out. I was recently in Australia visiting my family, and I have a four-year-old niece whose favorite thing, of course, is to go to playgrounds. And, you know, as soon as you walk into the playground, uh, the totally foolish thing to do would be to say, well, now, Stella, come and sit by here and let me tell you a story. Or, you know, let's sit quietly for a bit and look at the trees. Because her energy is just so out there. You know, it's just every, you know, like those, the family circus cartoons with the dotted lines of the kid going everywhere, you know, they possibly can in the environment. Just that energy that wants to be out, be, be active. And so it's really um, futile to just try and cramp that energy, to really um, contain it. We need to make room for it, however that works for us. Really make space for it, work with it skillfully. And learn to be open to the cycles of practice, that there are times of restlessness and times of calm, and just not to bring more aversion or agitation or worry to that feeling of restlessness. Jack Cornfield often talks about, you know, well, I challenge you, be the first yogi to die of restlessness. <laughs> it really, sometimes we're jumping out of our skin, it feels so painful. Just sit with it, see what happens. If you just stayed there for that whole sitting, or stayed doing the walking practice, even if the mind is all over the place, make the commitment to the posture or to the, the, the outer discipline of the walking and see what happens, see what happens to the restlessness. Restlessness is also that agitation of mind where it's just not able to settle. And for me, what's always a sign of that is what I call meta-muddles. And Steve spoke a little bit about those, uh, I think it was earlier this morning. But when you say, find yourself saying things like, may I live with leaves instead of (laughs) live with peace, or may I be free on Sunday. May I be limited. It was some of my favorite. May I be free from inner and outer calm. Or may I be free from something. Anytime a phrase goes by and you sort of have this feeling of, what was that again? It's always good to check in. It usually means that you're not quite connecting with the meaning of the words. So that for me, you know, they were just actually a little humorous flag. Okay, time to get a little more connected. (laughs) Meaning of the words. What actually am I saying here? So with restlessness, we just take a deeper breath and begin again. You know, we just bring as much um, determination as we can to refocusing on the phrases or to take a walk to release some of the energy. Use the restraints of the structure of the retreat just to give ourselves up to it and let the restlessness just flow through. 
The fifth of these hindrances is doubt. And it's sometimes the most difficult one to work with because when we feel doubt, everything gets invalidated. We get invalidated. The practice gets invalidated. The teachings gets inva- get invalidated. The teachers get invalidated. Who are those guys anyway? What, is, what do they think they're talking about? The most important thing when doubt comes up, again, see it for what it is, a doubting thought, and doubt the doubt. Because we can actually doubt every hindrance, because they're all not a true indicator of who we are, or what our experience is, or what the truth is. If you're an experienced Vipassana meditator, and this is your first metta retreat, you may be having a lot of doubts about this practice. You may have come to a place in your Vipassana practice where you you have a lot of faith. You've really seen the benefits of the practice. And here we are doing almost what seems to be the opposite. You know, in Vipassana, it's open, whatever is, you know, let it be there, investigate it, be with it, you know, change, impermanence. And here it's put that aside, come back, cultivate this deliberately, be with just this one feeling, let the others go. You know, it's such a different practice. And it's a concentration practice, not an insight practice. And we sort of go, what is going on here? You know, how does this work? Um, In times like that, we really have to come back to faith. You know, just hearing the stories of the practice and how it works, of talking in the interviews. Um, Outside of the retreat, obviously, we can talk to friends. But really, if the doubt is present, really helpful to speak about it in the interviews and get some clarification, get another perspective on it. When I did my first intensive metta retreat a few years ago, um, I had what I called a metta meltdown. And I was working with the benefactor, had been doing that for a week or two, can't remember how long. And even though my practice in some ways was quite good, I had a lot of concentration, I'm not a very emotional person usually, and so I wasn't getting a lot of meta flavor in the practice. You know, I was very steady, very focused. Um, You know, definitely a feeling of kindness was present, but, you know, not what I thought should be present. Um, And then at one interview, my teacher said for me to change the benefactor, use someone else. And I went out of that interview and I thought, he must have said that because I'm hopeless at this. You know, give up on that benefactor. You're not getting anywhere with that person. It's just useless, you know. You have to, you know, try someone else, please. You know, I, I don't want to hear you again saying it's not working or whatever. And so I just started my walking practice and just these thoughts of, oh, you, you're hopeless. You'll never love anyone. It's just useless, you know. What, what, how could you, you know, even try to do this practice? It'll never work. And you're know, just filled with floods and floods of doubt about myself, about the practice, about my ability to do it. And at one moment, some clarity of mindfulness or grace just came upon me, and I'm ever grateful for it. It really felt like I was at a, a crossroads, and there was just a really clear choice between going on that path of doubt and self-judgment and criticism that was very familiar to me. And I could go down that path quite happily because I felt so at home there. And it really seemed like a a roller coaster. No, not a roller coaster because they have ups. It was really a one-way street (laughs) to this chasm of self-pity and, you know, 
moroseness and depression that I could dwell in for days on end, you know, of just skulking around feeling sorry for myself. But the thought came, for me, came to me very clearly, at some point you're going to have to come out of that. Having known it before, I remembered that at some point I eventually come out of it. And I thought, if you eventually come out of it, and in, if in being there nothing is really gained, nothing wholesome is cultivated, why go there? And it was such a radical thought to have. As I say, I'm ever grateful that I saw that possibility and I just turned my mind away from those thoughts to a state of acceptance. I just said, this is the amount of metta that I have. This is what I feel. This is who I am. And it will have to be enough. It is enough. And it was such a relief. And it wasn't like I then got filled with floods of metta and dwelt in, you know, bliss and golden light. But that feeling of acceptance was so strong that I was able to continue my practice. And I've used that understanding as a refuge time and time again. It was really very helpful. So it's just, you know, any time when those doubts, those self-doubts start to flood in, there's just that moment of these are just thought patterns. There is a choice here. If we can see that, there's that possibility of not going down that path. Guy and I actually have three cats. And it's interesting to see how each of them embodies a different hindrance. (laughs) Our most recently acquired cat is Kailash. She actually used to live here at Spirit Rock. She's an orange cat. And she's a greed type. And it's interesting how she sees the world and human beings as put there for her pleasure, for her delight and comfort. So she's the sort of cat that's always in your lap. You know, as soon as you even go to sit down, she's there waiting to climb on and then kneads herself into an orgasm of just delight and bliss with, you know, little drops of drool and then finally succumbs in, you know, just this state of absolute pleasure. And if you stop petting her, she sort of stops purring and looks up at you with this quizzical look of, you know, why would you stop? You know, it's what you're there for. And then there's Onyx. Onyx is a black cat. I call her a little black bowling ball. She's very tubby, but she's a grumpy, aversive. She's a sort of cat who, when she's sitting on your lap, if you go to get up, she growls and claws at you, you know. <laughs> and she sees the world as her enemy. You know, she's always looking at what's unpleasant in the world. And she's so obstreperous. I'm actually fairly good with animals at giving them medicine, and people often come to me to do that. I've given up with onyx. I now have to take her to the vet to get her worm pill because I've been clawed, you know, just my whole arm being spots of blood from onyx trying to get a little pill down her throat. And so, you know, in being an aversive type, in seeing the world as her enemy, she gets subject to great fear because she goes to the vet and in that state of terror, she takes her pill. And then Opal. Opal is a Siamese, part Siamese. And she's doubt. She's just so suspicious of everything. Um, Even when she wants to climb on your lap, you know, we've had her for 10 years. We've never been cruel to her. And she's sort of, oh, oh, you have to, Onyx, uh, Opie, it's okay. You can come. Opie dopey, we call her. (laughs) 
So it's interesting to see these three cats, how the way they see the world conditions the way it relates to them. Kailasha gets all these love, this love and affection and stroking. And Onyx gets taken to the vet because she has to, you know, have her pill. And Opie just, you know, the doorbell rings and she disappears, you know. It's fear, it's someone new. It's just conditioning operating in them constantly. They all are queens of sloth and torpor and restlessness as cats are, you know. The after-breakfast nap, the pre-lunch nap, the post-lunch siesta. And then, you know, Onyx, who's the queen of this, you know, sitting at the door wanting to let, get let out, and then you look around and there she is looking at you with those beady eyes, let me back in, and then a moment later I see she's out again and Guy has let her out, and there she is scratching to come in. So as I've said before, in working with all of these hindrances, the first and the most important thing is to become aware of them. Because unless we see how they're coloring our view of the world, we don't realize that we're looking through a filter that is distorting everything we see. And even though it's painful to see them, there's a way in which we, sh- we should be happy. Joseph actually in the last retreat uh, said that when these hindrances or actions that he takes that are not so skillful are pointed out. He said, I'd rather see them than not, even though I'm usually not so happy with the pointer outer, but still quite happy to see them. And our metta practice actually confronts us with these places that we're blocked and bound. It forces us to see them because we have this desire for connection, for an open heart, for being present, yet we experience closing down, fear, ill will, wanting, and worry. But can we be open to this too, as our current experience, as the way things are right now, without getting locked into it, without it defining who we are? Can we bring an attitude of metta to these hindrances? Can we be kind to them, to ourselves, to their manifestation, If we can't hold them in that way, then we turn to Vipassana. We see them as they are in the mind and the body. We can actually also deliberately cultivate their opposite, which is the whole thrust of metta practice. For the force of greed, we cultivate generosity or renunciation. As Sharon Sharon Salzberg in her wonderful book on metta, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art, of happiness says that we can purify the mind of craving by practicing generosity of heart. And we can purify the mind of grasping by developing gratitude, appreciation for our lives and our friends and our circumstances. We can purify the mind of the force of desire through the power of simplifying by knowing what we truly need in order to be happy. The antidotes to anger are this practice of metta, of loving-kindness, of also cultivating patience and tolerance. The antidotes for restlessness are calm and peace and concentration, and metta as a concentration practice, again, is a wonderful antidote to restlessness. For sleepiness, we need to cultivate interest and energy and investigation. And for doubt, We need to cultivate faith. We need to really trust that this practice does work. 
looking at the examples of others, really reflecting on our own experience. But sometimes in the face of these hindrances, we just need to be a little kinder to ourselves. The final step, the final thing we can do is just to let it be. Sometimes all the best intentions and efforts and antidotes don't make any difference. But then the point of our practice is not to be in conflict or to struggle with the present moment. So we just have to accept it somehow as the way things are, as best you can. Because our freedom and true happiness doesn't lie in getting rid of these states or in achieving some special state of mind because that would be a very precarious way to happiness. It's very conditioned by things being a certain way. But it's in learning to understand them and work with them skillfully because we can find freedom and contentment and happiness and connection right now if there's a true acceptance of our experience as it is. This acceptance is a huge part of our metta practice because it's the way that we're kind to ourselves and the way that we're kind to others when we accept them just as they are, for who they are, the way they are, without wishing them to be different. There's a poem poem from Rainer Maria Rilke that speaks to this longing we have not to be hindered, not to be distracted or divided by these energies and of the place that is our true nature, the source of all happiness and peace. He says, Ah, to be not cut off, not through the slightest partition, shut out from the law of the stars. The inner, what is it, if not intensified sky, hurled through with birds and the deep winds of homecoming? So let's just sit together for a moment. Ah, to be not cut off, not through the slightest partition, shut out from the law of the stars. The inner, what is it, if not intensified sky, hurled through with birds and deep with the winds of homecoming? So thank you for your attention. It's about half an hour now for walking practice, and then at 9 o'clock 
we'll have the last sitting of the day uh, beginning with the metta chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.